Welcome back to the Naked Security Podcast. I'm Kimberly Trung, and to my virtual left, I've got Doug Amith. Hi, I'm Doug from the product team here at Sophos, and you might recognize my voice from such exciting videos as Sophos Central How-To Endpoint Policy Overview and Can Your Security Solutions Synchronize? <laughs> Happy to be here. And then to my virtual right, I've got Paul Ducklin. Hello, everybody. <laughs> that was quick. So succinct. I'll, I'll try that next time. <laughs> no disrespect, Doug. Guys, welcome back again to the Naked Security Podcast, where we're going to break down all the things happening in cyber news this past week. We've got some interesting stories. But before we get into that, I'm going to tease out our Oh No of the Week, which happens at the very uh, end of this podcast. We have a mysterious beep, and that's all I'm going to say. So beep, stick beep. around. Yep. But in the meantime, what are those headlines happening this week, Doug? First, we're going to talk about creepy covert camera feature, quote unquote, found in popular smartwatch for kids. Then we're going to move on to Microsoft on the counterattack. TrickBot malware network takes a hit. And then our final article is called Windows Ping of Death Bug Revealed. Patch now. Last time it was reveal. This week it's Ping of Death. But first... According to HolidayInsights.com, October is Awareness Month. So, <laughs> yeah, I stay about aware. That. It must be a typo, right? They must have left out cybersecurity or surely. Because... I like to think it was not. I just think you should be aware only in October. But what really. kind of awareness? Like self-awareness? Awareness. No, but other then it would have been Awareness Awareness Month. <laughs> would ah, that's not? a good point. It's also uh, National Diabetes Month, which as a type 1 diabetic, I appreciate. But ironically, right after that, it's National Pizza Month, which can be a <laughs> diabetic nightmare if you're not careful. So those two kind of cancel each other out. Maybe that's why you should be aware. I'm not going to take any chances. I'm just going to be hyper aware yeah. all month. And then November, I can kind of take a breather. You know what I was about to say there, Doug? I was about to say, did you notice how I managed to get through that whole thing without slipping in but it is Cybersecurity Awareness Month. But then I remembered I did actually say the word cybersecurity. You did. So I I won't say that. (laughs) You said it for a second time now. Okay, so what's going on with this? uh... Speaking of slipping things in, there's a (laughs) creepy feature found in uh, this popular smartwatch for kids. Paul, what's going on here? Well, this is, if you like, a revisit by two Norwegian researchers of kids' Smartwatches or smart devices for kids. They're very popular these days, as you can imagine, particularly if you can get something that's A, tells the time, B, is kind of cool and modern and funky and has some apps the kids can use, but C, can help parents not have to get frenzied or frantic every time their kids don't show up on time, which is pretty much every time they say they'll be there at seven o'clock and they're not, because, of course, the idea of a kid's smartwatch is it's supposed to be able to track you. Now, these researchers had done some work for the uh, Norwegian Consumer Council, I believe, back in 2017, and they looked at four different kids' smartwatch services. They were looking at the cloud aspects of it, and they weren't very impressed. And there's quite a big reaction. In fact, Germany, I think, subsequently banned the sale of this kind of device to kids, figuring you've got to get the privacy sorted because it creeps can use it to find out where your kids are. If the security's wrong and they can go and look up where is your kid, then the creeps know just as well as the parents do. Anyway, they figured that one of the companies in their survey, which is a company called Explorer, 
had kind of started to hit the semi-big time, at least in Europe. This is a company, I think it's a Norwegian company, but they sell in many countries in Europe, plus the UK. And I believe they've started selling in, in the US as well. And they claim to do something like j- just shy of $10 million a year in revenue, which is nothing to be sneezed at. And they claim to have close to half a million users. So these things are taking off despite their erratic and checkered cybersecurity history. This time, what these guys decided to do is instead of looking at the cloud aspects, they figured, let's dig into the watch itself and uh, see what code it's running and how good it is. And what they found was quite creepy. In short, an encrypted SMS, so a text message, can be sent to this watch to trigger what looks like very creepy surveillance functions. Yeah, that's Kimberly, that is kind of the long and the short of it in the end. The researchers went into the phone, they downloaded all the apps and they started looking at them. And there were a load of apps like you might expect that divide up the functionality that you would expect in a smartwatch. And they found an app that it it didn't even look like it was, to me, like it was specific to a particular smartwatch. It was just a sort of general app that looks after other apps on a device of this sort. And it was called Persistent Connection Service. And that, the first thing it did is it went through all the programs that were already running. It got a list of all the control messages that those programs would accept. Google calls them intents. If you're an Android programmer, you'll know what that means. And then very helpfully for the researchers, it then printed out some debugging stuff to the debug log. So they were connected with the Android debugger. So of course, they got all this information and immediately without having to do any reverse engineering, their sort of alarm detectors went off. (laughs) They heard the beeps, as it were. And they realized that this persistent connection service, as you say, you could send an SMS to the watch that's encrypted using an encryption key that is not set by the parents or the kids for that matter. It's set into the watch before you buy it. And so the vendor knows it and the watch knows it. So it's only the vendor that can send these messages. And that message talks to the persistent connection service. And it's what I'm calling a meta message. It's a control message that says, go and tell one of the apps to do one of these weird things. And some of the commands that it can trigger are things like remote underscore XE underscore command or command underscore log underscore upload. Wiretap underscore incoming. What does that sound like? And as you say, there's one called remote underscore snapshot. Now, their their explanation was that this was an old feature, a prototype feature that was removed that would the child could press this SOS button on the watch, which would then take a picture of whatever was happening and then send it back to the parents, which as a feature sounds useful, yeah. albeit it's one that can be easily manipulated if it falls into the wrong hands. It's these other ones, the, the, like the wiretap one. On, that's, <laughs> yeah. that's, a, that's just a lesson to, like, to coders. Don't don't name your functions of the code you're writing stuff like wiretap or things that are going to get people's backs up like well, that. You know, the good news is that a determined researcher isn't going to be put off by innocent sounding variable names. And often, depending on the type of program that you're reverse engineering, often you don't get back the original variable names anyway. It's just fortunate that when decompiling Android packages, yep. in some cases you do. So the fact that this thing prints a whole load of debugging stuff and it says, oh, I'm going to keep an eye on all the other programs and all the other aspects of the software and I can control them. 
it doesn't sound like this was specific to this smartwatch. It sounds like a generic part of the development process. So you can understand why it might be put in there while you're developing. It's a very bad look at best that it didn't get removed. But it is it is a peculiar explanation, is it? Oh, yeah, yeah. The one the one that you happened to test out and that you happened to mention to us. Oh, we've removed that. You get, what about all the others? What about wiretap? And what about remote command execution or whatever it is? You're thinking, were those prototypes that got left behind? To be honest, leaving prototype code that isn't supposed to be in there, particularly when it's as privacy sapping as that, leaving prototype code in the final build, it's almost one of those unforgivable sins. As, as a parent of three young kids who has, we have a plethora of connected devices in the home. We have five Echo Dots. Uh, my son has, my six-year-old son has a smartwatch, not a connected one. Um, we have connected cameras in uh, our boys' room and in the baby's room because they're easier to use than regular nanny cams. It's a constant trade-off between convenience and security. Right. But you have you have to assume when you buy these things, especially the when you're when you're looking for the cheapest versions of these things, that anything that's connected is ripe for exploitation. Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely. Obviously, you you want to trust the company, but like do. Do I trust a company that is maybe licensing this technology from a manufacturer that has licensed these cameras out to a bunch of different ones? If you go on e-commerce shopping sites and search for webcams, a lot of them look exactly the same with different logos on it. So you have to assume that some of these manufacturers, some of the the people selling these, some of them don't even have access to the code that's on these devices. So they have no idea what's going on in the background. So you have to assume when you buy these things that the security of these devices is either not in the seller's control or is a complete afterthought, especially the cheaper the device gets. It doesn't look as though the company made any effort to do any kind of penetration testing or even looked at the source code Mm -hmm. of what is essentially to the purchaser their device. So that also raises the question, well, if these guys fixed one of these surveillance functions that wasn't supposed to be there. A, how many got left behind in this particular model? Mm -hmm. And B, how many other companies are selling exactly the same product with a different name on it? So you think, oh, I didn't buy the XYZ99 version. I bought the ABC23 one. And maybe the ABC23 one hasn't even been partially patched yet. It is, an, as you say, an absolute nightmare. And I guess the reason is that when you're, when you're in a very price competitive consumer market and you're building some, let's face it, you can buy dash cams, like wireless ready dash cams that can record hours of decent quality video for what, $29? Mm-hmm. And you kind of think when that's the retail price in a store, how much money is left over during development exactly. for security? Mm-hmm. About minus $3. You, you have to guess. I think the, the idea here was let's buy this technology for as cheaply as possible, then let's mark it up and resell it, right? Yeah, and I guess, you know, the, it's ironic that the, the, the response that we saw now, this isn't on the company's own website. We got it via a statement that was apparently sent to Ars Technica, which they they then published. And that is, we removed the functionality for all commercial models due to privacy concerns. That's the remote snapshot thing. Uh, The researcher found that some of the code was not completely eliminated from the firmware. 
So there's a little bit of a tension there. We removed the functionality, oh, except we forgot. They didn't remove the functionality because it still works. And worst of all, it works in a way that parents weren't informed about and that they don't get to choose, right? This, this encryption key is installed into the device either when it's made or before it's shipped. To be fair, they patched it when they before the researchers went public. Presumably that was an arrangement that we, we, we'll have patched it by day X, so you can tell the world about on day X plus one. That's yeah. the normal way that you do with responsible disclosure. Yep. But you're thinking, well, like I said, firstly, there's that question of what about all the other stuff that they, they found? Did those get removed? And also, as, as the researchers themselves quipped, given that uh, the messages that apps will accept for control messages are called intents in Google, they said that the burning question is, these features have been created with intent, but what exactly is that intent? Yeah. And it's a shame too, because this is, again, this is, it's kind of a, it's a cool feature that, so the kid presses the SOS button, it sends a picture, but I would assume that it, had this feature been fully baked in, that the parents at any time could send an SMS to the watch, which would then send back a picture, which is a great safety feature, be, as, assuming we could build it safely. W where are you? I'm at the park. No, I just took a picture on your watch and there's a big Budweiser sign in the background. <laughs> so what are you doing in my favorite bar, six-year-old? So uh, anyway. Duck, do you have any last parting advice for parents who want to get their kids a smartwatch? As Doug pointed out, it's really difficult because they're cool to have, they're very useful, but how on earth do you know what you're getting yourself into? Unfortunately, the only advice I can really give you is if you do buy, is that you need to be prepared that if you buy a device, even if you think it's cool and you later find out that it has, like this one apparently did, feet of clay, and the response you get from the developers doesn't really satisfy you, then you kind of have no choice, no matter how much you pay for it, to stop using it. Like you can't repurpose it because it's all proprietary. Sometimes you may pay a load of money for a smart device for your kids. And in the end, all you're going to have to do is please recycle responsibly. Sadly, can sometimes come down to that. You just have to stop using it. Great, great stuff going on here. If you want to check out this full story, head on over to nakedsecurity.sophos.com. The title of this story is called Creepy Covert Camera Feature, quote unquote, found in popular smartwatch for kids. <laughs> Doug, you have a, a comment for us in the comment purgatory. I don't know if this, I, I, guys, this is such a tough call, but I need, uh, I need a blocker allow ruling on this one. <laughs> On an article titled, Google Chrome to start blocking downloads served via HTTP, Caroline writes, stop sending me nude pic. Please, I find it offensive. Am not interested for God's sake. <laughs> Block or allow. <laughs> Look, anybody who can abuse an apostrophe that badly <laughs> by leaving out the possessive entirely. She's upset. Yeah. Uh, you know what? I think that this person has a friend called Stephen Tips or something, <laughs> and she meant to send an email to stips at sophos.com and accidentally sent it to, or, you know... You, oh, no, this person or, works at Sophos, too. <laughs> yeah. Good. You don't know Steve Tips? No, I, I, I walked into that. No, I'm thinking maybe it was... I, I didn't mean it that way. I meant maybe it was... No, Steve Tips Steve works in Tips. accounting. He's, he's great. Or it's email autocomplete. We've all been there. Mm. <laughs> We've all maybe been she's there. Got a, maybe <laughs> she's got a friend called Tipperary. Yep. And uh, or Tipper. Mm -hmm. Tipper Gore. And 
Tipper <laughs> Gore. Tipper Gore, stop sending nude pics. Let's head into our next story. And this is about Microsoft on the counterattack. So there's some good and bad news in this particular story. Earlier this week, Microsoft was granted an order by a U.S. district court permitting it to take over a whole bunch of internet servers, servers that belonged to a large, longtime and destructive zombie network known as TrickBot, which Duck has written about on several occasions. They're known for their super devious emails that seem to hitch their wagons to big events like the coronavirus pandemic and the Black Lives Matter movement with the ultimate goal of infecting as many people as possible with zombie malware and sometimes ending with ransomware. Duck, can you tell us a little bit about this story? Why exactly is this a win for Microsoft? Well, when I wrote it up, of course, it was all good news. Well, mostly good news. There's The good news still holds, but as he said, there's there's been an unhappy ending mm. somewhat. Obviously, law enforcement it's very difficult for law enforcement to deal with guys who are in another jurisdiction who are doing these massive cyber... First, they have to identify them, which is very hard. And then, for all we know, they might end up... And there are many jurisdictions that refuse to extradite their own citizens. There are many more countries are in that position than I thought. And so they may not be able to touch them anyway. Um, in some cases, obviously, you can then go to that jurisdiction and prosecute, but that's stupendously complicated because you know someone from the US or a whole team would have to take all the documents and go to the other country and try and prosecute. So law enforcement have got their work cut out anyway. So Microsoft figured, well, maybe we can do something using civil remedies. And my understanding is they went to the court and they said, these naughty people are abusing our licensing and our intellectual property by using the Windows system calls and Windows functionality in their software to do bad stuff. And, you know, it's pretty much it's an insult to Microsoft and it's an insult to Windows and it's an insult to everybody. And the court said, okay, because this seems to be a it's an intellectual property breach. Mm. Yeah, they have to these servers clearly relate to those guys. That's where their malware is living. That those are the servers that they're using to distribute and more importantly, to do the remote control, the command and control for their zombie network. You guys can take over those IP numbers and Microsoft in conjunction with telecoms providers all over the world with that court order in the hand took out the, if you like, the control, the nerve center of the TrickBot network, the command and control CNC or C2, as you often hear it called. So in theory, what that means is it's now very difficult for the crooks to get new victims to download the next wave of attacks. And it's also very difficult for them to send command and control messages saying, now do the ransomware thingy to computers that are already infected. And my, my question would be, how long is it going to take for them to get it fired back up? But I think we know the answer to that. Cybercrime abhors a vacuum. Even when one lot of crooks actually get arrested and they can't do their crimes anymore because they're locked up and they don't have internet access, invariably someone seems to come along to fill that void. And here, of course, these crooks... They're crooks. They're not complying with the law. They don't care. They'll go. They've got enough money, might, infrastructure, and enough leftover infected computers, I imagine, to rebuild their distribution network, get the zombies zombieing again. When something like this is disrupted, is are, are all these zombies still out there just waiting to hear from the new communications structure that they 
build or do they have to reinfect all these computers again? Doug, I'm sorry to have to say that the answer to that, like with unfortunately with so much in cybersecurity, is one of those yes and no, or it depends. Some zombies can kind of reinvent themselves. Some versions may have a kind of, I nearly said the word backdoor, but you know, they'll have some mechanism whereby if all else fails, they'll try some other perhaps hitherto unknown mechanism. All the cooks may know where enough of them are that they can go and reprogram them, send, manage to send them commands. Because you think about these command and control in, s- infrastructures that most bots use, sometimes they'll use an algorithm that chooses a new domain name every day. And it goes through this sort of these these sort of weird combinations. And if you don't know the algorithm exactly, you don't know what domain they might want to use on March the seventeenth next year. But the crooks will. It's like having a a one time code wow. of which domain to use. So they've always got these fallbacks. And the other thing, they're even they're even zombies and trickbots. Not one of these, as far as I know. But we've even seen zombies that use things like uh, Twitter as their command and control. Because hmm. most companies allow access, say, to Twitter.com. All the zombie has to know is the name of a Twitter account, and it'll go there and download that account's messages. And the messages, like in, like in the smartwatch uh, we were just talking about, oh. these weird-looking Twitter messages are just basically trigger codes. So they'll have, a, they'll, have a, they'll have a magic word in them that says, start spamming, begin deleting, sniff for passwords do the ransomware thing, whatever it is. If all else fails, well, the other thing these guys are masters at is reinfecting computers where the malware's been found and removed. So even if they had to start from scratch, they're pretty jolly good at that. And, you know, we get, we, we've got lots of links in the article that we wrote on Naked Security about the kind of malware campaigns. Kimberly mentioned a couple. There was one that was a you know coronavirus warning in Italy at the beginning of lockdown. You need to read this because people in your region are... Uh, you have high infection rate in your region, all in all in fluent Italian. And so it was enough for people to open it up. And they said, for your privacy, the document's protected, et cetera, et cetera. So these crooks don't, they don't rely on having an existing non- zombie network to build the next one. It's just a lot easier for them if they do. Think about it. They started from nothing at one time. And sadly, they've learned their lesson and they can do it again. Still, hats off to Microsoft for trying, right? This is, a, this is a good legal move that provides a new vehicle for letting courts have a reason to say, yeah, that server is run by a sleazebag. You can take it over because they're ruining things for everybody. Well, a few thoughts here. We had a great question in the comments, and I have a question as well. Uh, the question from the comments said, it's good news that someone took this initiative, but should the initiative be taken by governments or public organizations instead of a quote-unquote private company? That's been a perennial question. It comes up year after year after year, right from the very early days of when we hadn't even prosecuted virus writers yet, didn't even know where to start. What on earth are we going to do? Whose job is it? The only viable answer is a bit of both. Of course, Microsoft's using a civil remedy here. They can't arrest the crooks. That's for law enforcement to do because that's criminal charges. And where so-called private or, you know, non-public sector companies come in is doing what Microsoft are saying, you know what, they're hurting us and thereby all our users, so we will use a civil remedy. And my my, my opinion is that if 
let's say Microsoft and law enforcement decide, okay, let's do this as the people versus the, the, the trickbot guys rather than Microsoft feed the trickbot guys. As far as I can see, they'd have to use the same sort of legal approach. It would just have been a lot more work and it would have tied up the law enforcement team. So you could argue that it's, it's almost like parallel processing. And maybe that's what we want. Private companies coming out saying, no, we're going to defend our intellectual property rights against these people. And we're going to use that wherever we can. And Microsoft now know that they can do this again. And they've said they're prepared to. They said, we know the guys will be back, but we're willing to try this again. So I think the answer is, it, it's not a replacement for law enforcement doing it. It's as well. So pardon if this is a basic observation, but it sounds like one surefire way to fight against things like TrickBot is to have your own cybersecurity software installed and running on your computer. Is it as simple as that or is it more complicated than that? Because this is uh, zombie malware. Sometimes it's like targeted human-led ransomware. So any advice for the average Joe who's like, hey, I want to make sure I don't have zombie malware on my computer? Sure. No cybersecurity software not ours, not anyone else's, is going to protect you in 100% of cases, not least because if the crooks decide that you're key to their next wave of infections, then they're going to go about building something that they know works around whatever defenses you have at the moment. There's always going to be that cat and mouse game. However, I suspect that an awful lot of zombie infections are there on computers that if only the person did a tiny little bit more, like they had updated their antivirus in the last month, like if they had turned on the web filtering, but they kind of not never got round to it, if they'd picked a proper password, if they turned on two-factor authentication, then that zombie malware wouldn't have got onto their computer. And that would at least protect them and at most protect everyone else who might have been targeted or at risk because they were essentially providing part of this distribution infrastructure to the crooks. So like we've said before, there is that injury to one as an injury to all sense. And even if you don't care if your computer gets encrypted, your data gets stolen, your data gets scrambled, with a bot or a zombie malware on your computer, the crooks can also use your computer as a jumping off point for their next criminal activity. So yeah, the cybersecurity software, it will not get you out of trouble in 100.0% of the cases. But if you could do that little bit more, you could probably make an awful difference. And if everybody did a little bit more, well, then the crooks might not find it so easy to start up a brand new zombie network from scratch. All right, that is Microsoft on the counterattack. TrickBot malware network takes a hit on nakedsecurity.sophos.com. Let's move right along. Now, when I say ping of death, I know some of you are asking, Doug, isn't that the name of your Slayer cover band? <laughs> or is that the unpatched Windows 10 computer being crashed at will across the network by a simple bug tripping Python script thing? Or both. It is both, but it's the second one for the purposes of this podcast. I, I look forward to uh, look forward to your next album. <laughs> Available on Spotify or wherever you stream your music. Actually, Spotify uh, rejected our uploads. Oh, so no. We're still working. Yeah, we might host it on... I'm pretty good at HTML4, so I might figure out... I'll fire up Dreamweaver, and I'll uh, 
Or maybe uh, Microsoft front page, and I'll get those tracks up eventually. Can't wait. Hey, there's this thing, Doug, there's this thing, it's dead new, but you should try it. It's called MP3. Mm. Fantastic. Mm. Yes. Never heard of I've it. I've heard of Check this Wimamp. Wimamp, is that what it's called? <laughs> Getting serious, guys. Sorry, I started the unseriousness, is that all this thinking about the past, that's what some people have said, commenting on the story that we wrote on Naked Security about this ping of death, is oh. somebody said... What year is it? Because basically, it's a kind of, you sort of think it's a little bit of an entry-level bug that wouldn't be in Windows now. But in fact, the bug affects, as Doug said, Windows 10 and Windows Server 2019, as far as I know. It was patched in this Tuesday's Patch Tuesday. So get the patch, because basically it means that if you use and have turned on IPv6 on your network, which most people will have it enabled, then anybody who can, basically anyone who can send a something like a ping packet to your computer can include an optional field that's specific to IPv6 that is bigger than it's supposed to be, and your computer, the application processing that packet crashes. Unfortunately, the application is a thing called tcpip.sys, and anyone who knows their Windows will know that sys files are not regular programs. They are kernel drivers. So you don't crash an app that can be safely restarted. You crash the kernel and you get a blue screen of death. Crash the Kernel is the title track on Ping of Death's newest album. So check that out when you get a chance. It's a catchier title than CVE-2020-16898, which is how this bug is denoted. Uh, it's a stack buffer overflow. 10, 20 years ago in Windows, if you'd found something like that, it would almost certainly mean that you could do what's called remote code execution. So you don't just crash the process, you crash the, the kernel process and take it over to run code of your choice. So what's called remote code execution, which basically means A, you can implant malware, and B, with net, if it's network related, you can probably turn the malware into a worm or a virus by then using that computer as a jumping off point to attack the next guy. What I said about injury to one is an injury to all. The good news is that although this is a rather old school bug, the new school protections in, well, basically all Windows is past Windows XP, make it pretty difficult to do what's called weaponizing bugs of this sort. It's not impossible. Somebody might figure it out. And as Microsoft says in their exploitation chart, they give this an exploitation level of one. Zero means you're too late, the crooks are already on it. One means no matter how hard this is to exploit, you can be jolly sure that somebody's desperately trying to do so now. So do not delay patch today. Can I ask an indelicate question? How do I put this diplomatically? There have been a few, um, and these are mostly the feature updates that have not gone swimmingly. And so people have been generally waiting to apply these feature updates that happen once a quarter or whatever. Well, this is not a feature update. This is not a feature update. This is a part of the security patch. I, so that's so that's my question. When, when we say patch early, patch often, it are, is our advice to people, if there is, on Patch Tuesday, you should just apply those patches blindly, just just go? Or is it sometimes okay to, to I'm not, not in the case of this patch, but patches in general, sometimes is it okay to w sit back and wait a little bit to make sure no one else has experienced any problems? just because some of these feature updates for Windows 10 have been so rocky. In this case, this is one you should definitely apply mm -hmm. because 
anybody else on your network or who could ping your computer. Maybe it's a little bit less of an issue if you're at home. They probably can't do remote code execution or let loose a worm. Not yet. But you, we know that somebody somewhere is trying their darndest to be able to do that because, wow, what a thing that would be. And everybody who hasn't patched will be harming themselves and the world. There are some cases where, yes, I think you do just need to bite the bullet and where the cure is not going to be worse than the disease. There are a couple of workarounds that you can use that basically prevent the bug being exposed. At least one of those fixes, which is to turn off a particular feature of IPv6, will probably not have any deleterious effects on your network, but it'll stop anyone being able to stick a knitting needle into this particular bug. So it's not as good as patching, but it's the next best thing. So in this case, there really is no excuse. There's a good workaround. And then Microsoft have got instructions on how to turn the workaround on. And then after you've patched, it's just as easy to turn it off and go back to the way you were. So even what's called a denial of service attack, where somebody on your network can take out individual computers, blue screen them at will whenever they want, it's still pretty dangerous. So our oh no of the week, it is that time of the podcast. Pilled Dalton Abbey in Reddit, Tales from Tech Support writes, we received a support ticket from a customer who stated that our software was causing all of their computers to beep and they needed to know what to do to make it stop. We went back and forth a few times with them trying to diagnose things via the support ticket system, but nothing made sense. Our software only produces a sound when an error or alert appears, and you'd only hear it if you had a sound card and speakers. Doug. Duck. Care to take a guess what that sound was? I, I guess this is going back a bit because the idea of beeps. I, I can see why you'd reach for the support line is that back in the day, it was either one of those weird sound-based error messages from the BIOS when you started up your computer because the computer was so wrecked that even the screen wouldn't work. Or virus writers started using beeps as a joke because they knew that it would put the fear of God into people and they'd panic and they'd think, golly, something's wrong with my computer. It'd also be helpful to know what kind of sound cards we're talking about. <laughs> this is ad-lib or a sound blaster or a rolling MT32 sound, sound cards. <laughs> We have a fourth guest on the podcast. I'm calling him Ned. <laughs> no, I mean, <laughs> thanks, Doug, Ned. You must have been so gutted when USB sound <laughs> came along, and people could literally go and buy a high quality microphone, plug it in, and it just worked. And they didn't even have to open the case and put a grounding strap on their wrist. <laughs> Kids these days, they will never know the joy of installing a sound blaster and firing up Ski or Die. <laughs> And hearing that theme wailed in true polyphonic sound. It's too easy. Okay. Uh, so I'm guessing that I don't know how it resolved. It sounds as though I'm gonna tell you. the customer would have the customer was panicking because they thought they had a virus that had just gone haywire and it had got to all the computers and they were doomed. I'm gonna guess something environmental and non computing related, like when I thought our fire alarm was going off in the middle of the night and I called the fire department and it turns out it was uh, an alarm system for our, our pumps to pump out rainwater. And I got the fire department over here at four in the morning. It was the wrong thing. Well, you're on, and you're on the And they've been dining out on that story. Oh, yeah. For years, oh, I'm sure. The, yeah, the, the guy with the pumps. 
<laughs> what an idiot. Oh, Des- <laughs> what a rube. Well, uh, well, yeah, we're... We- I bet they are doing that. They though. are. We know. You- we're friends with some of them. So yeah. pic- there's a picture of me in the fire, the fire station. In a bucket of water, I hope. <laughs> so was it a virus or was it a smoke alarm? <laughs> it was neither. So the the story ultimately ends with Pilt, Dout, and Abby telling us, I give them a call and sure enough, you can hear loud beeping. It sounds familiar, but I can't quite identify it. So I start asking basic troubleshooting questions. They tell me there's no speakers and that the computers have never made a sound before. So just to be sure, I ask them to look at the back of the computer to see if there is a sound card. She can't see behind the computer because the power is out and it's really dark. And that's when the sound made sense. It was their UPSs beeping at them. Uh So 30 minutes into the call, into the support call, this is the first time. It's impressive UPS. (laughs) Well, I bet you the truth was it was 28 minutes and 30 seconds into the call. And there's 90 seconds left <laughs> Rounding to up. save an exit in the dark. Because there's no, there's no auto save in those days, is there? It's basically if the power goes out, you lose everything. What kind of ramrod company is this, too, where they're like, no one move. I know all the power's out. You're in the dark, but just stay at your seats and keep computing. <laughs> this was a good oh, no. If you, listener, have an oh, no that you would like to share with us, you can slide into our DMs at Naked Security. On Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. And of course, you can leave an anonymous comment on nakedsecurity.sophos.com or you can send us an email, tips at sophos.com. Send me your own notes. I would love to, I would love to read them. Don't send it to Stips. That's Steve Tips who works <laughs> in accounting. Yes, so. Please, please don't send it to Stips. And Stips, for God's sake, stop yeah. sending the nude pic. Yeah. She is done with it for God's sake. And of course, if you enjoyed what you liked listening to, leave us a five-star review in Apple Podcast, and I may force Doug to read it in a funny voice. Uh, maybe the Ned voice will make a comeback? Well, that'd be pretty sweet. I'd be happy to do that for you, Lear Kibli. <laughs> Great. Leave us a five-star review. I will force Doug to read it in a funny Listen, voice. Listen, Sound Blaster Boy, you don't even know how to use a pump. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Tough but fair. Touche. Touche, Paul Ducklin. Touche. So, so, you know... All right, guys. Well, that has been the Naked Security Podcast. I'm Kimberly Trong. And again, we've got Doug Ameth. Say bye-bye, Doug. Bye-bye, Doug. (laughs) And Paul Ducklin. Say bye-bye, Doug. Bye. (laughs) And until next time. (laughs) 